The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe for this Tuesday, the 21st of March in London. Coming up today. One for all and all for one. The US looks at ways to guarantee all bank deposits. The lender of second to last resort. Liquidity hungry banks tap a key US backstop fund for more than $300 billion. A negative outlook. UBS sees its prospects downgraded after the takeover of its troubled rival. Plus, the CVs stack up. Credit Suisse bankers flood headhunters with calls as job cuts loom. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning, I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Here are the stories that we're following today. US officials are studying ways they might temporarily guarantee all bank deposits. Bloomberg understands that Treasury staff are reviewing whether federal regulators have authority to temporarily insure deposits greater than the current level of $250,000. Senate Banking Committee member Mark Warner says caution is needed. And I'm open to it. But I want to get the facts first on what caused this. I, in my gut, I believe this was a basic banking regulator 101 failure and a management failure, but I want to confirm that. When you start raising the caps, I don't know where you, where you top it off. Senator Warner was speaking to Bloomberg as mid-sized banks continue to lobby for broader government intervention after three lenders collapsed in a matter of weeks after uninsured depositors pulled their money. Meanwhile, shares in First Republic Bank dropped by 47% on Monday after S&P Global lowered its credit rating for the second time in a week. Well, this, as Bloomberg learned that the Federal Home Loan Bank system issued $304 billion in debt last week. Now, the appetite for so-called FHLBs, known as the lender of next to last resort, reflects an intense demand for cash across the US banking sector. But the Federal Reserve Bank of New York President William Dudley doesn't think that the appetite for liquidity will lead the Fed to pause when it comes to quantitative tightening. I think this is about uh, exceptional liquidity, lender of last resort provision to support the banking system. I think quantitative tightening, you know, the runoff of the Treasury portfolio and the agency mortgage-backed securities portfolio is going to continue unabated. Uh, I, I, I see these tools as very separate and different. So I expect that the quantitative tightening will continue. 
Dudley spoke to Bloomberg as Fed policymakers start a two-day meeting to decide whether or not to keep raising interest rates. Pershing Square's Bill Ackman says that they should hold them where they are, writing on Twitter that the banking crisis has already had the effect of a meaningful tightening of financial conditions. We're starting to find out who some of the biggest losers from Credit Suisse's takeover are. PIMCO and Invesco are among the largest holders of the lender's AT1 bonds. PIMCO held $807 million in the debt which was written off when the bank was taken over. But the founder of Devlin Capital at Devlin says fears this write-down will crash the wider market are unfounded. People have to recognise is this AT1, this new market for deeply subordinated debt, just after the the old financial crisis, European debt crisis, they all were done in a very ad hoc way. So they're, they're you can't generalize this is going to happen all the way across. You have to really read each security, understand how they're structured. These particular securities were very mechanical in terms of their write-down. So once the government got involved, they had to be wiped out. Other ones convert into equities. Other ones have different triggers. So you can't say this is bad for everything. That's Ad Devlin, who previously founded PIMCO Canada, speaking to Bloomberg. Some holders of Credit Suisse's 81 bonds are reportedly preparing to legally challenge the write-down. UBS's credit outlook was lowered to negative by both S&P and Moody's. Analysts are predicting choppy waters ahead as the Swiss lender attempts to integrate Credit Suisse. ECB President Christine Lagarde told EU lawmakers yesterday that European banks are shielded from any fallout. On the assessment of exposures, uh, in particular of the euro area banks to um, to the Credit, credit Suisse risk, the feedback and the assessment that has been produced indicates that it's a very limited exposure uh, to Credit Suisse, um, particularly in relation to the uh, 81s, uh, very limited. We're not talking billions, we're talking millions here. Lagarde added that she welcomed the swift action by Swiss authorities restoring order to the markets. U.S. asset management giant Vanguard is exiting from China. Sources tell Bloomberg the $7.1 trillion firm has notified China it intends to close its offices and ventures in the country. International funds are competing for an edge in China's growing $4 trillion fund market, with profits hard to find. And in other news, Russian leader Vladimir Putin has welcomed his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping to Moscow and says that he's ready to discuss Beijing's peace plan. However, Ukraine's leaders have been cool on the Chinese roadmap to peace, whilst the United States and its allies have rejected it outright. Speaking to Bloomberg, Alexander Korolev, author of China-Russia Strategic Alignment in International Politics, says that this is not a peace plan. It's not a kind of step-by-step plan how to end the war. It's more of a position paper. So this visit is really a demonstration of the fact that China stands with Russia. China is not going to turn its back towards Russia. That was Alexander Korolev speaking to Bloomberg. After his three-day trip, she is expected to speak via video link with the Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky for the first time since the invasion. Those are our top stories this morning. Caroline, I was interested to see some more of the reporting around the the takeover at Credit Suisse as well. Mm. Particularly, we've talked a lot about the flood of talent out of the bank. Now we have reporting today about how headhunters are being flooded with calls uh, from Credit Suisse bankers after the rescue. Perhaps unsurprising, but the detail of this is interesting. A headhunter in London, where Credit Suisse employs about 5,500 people, said he was fielding calls all weekend, particularly from those in the equities division, because mm-hmm. that's one of the parts of the business has felt there could be quite a lot of overlap. 
overlap with UBS. So those are people that are particularly worried about uh, their future uh, with the company as well. Um, our reporting, though, pointing out the prospect of other firms going on sort of a hiring binge of people from Credit Suisse that was quite limited too because generally speaking the situation doesn't look that bright. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've got some of the big names actually downsizing and shrinking their workforce. Think Goldman Sachs, Nomura, they're cutting roles. So yes, I think it's a really, really difficult moment, but it is uh, excellent reporting to understand what uh, the future um, is going to look like for those Credit Suisse uh, bankers and the overlap. Look, it's always though at the at the kind of most difficult moments at the bottom in markets, isn't it, that some people are casting their eye to the future and what may be to come. So I think this is the other most important bit of reporting on the Bloomberg Town Hall this morning. Franklin Templeton, Invesco, JP Morgan Asset Management are looking beyond the kind of bank failures that we're talking about, looking beyond interest rates uh, or even recession. And they are trying to look to the upturn. They're trying to position now for the yeah for the resurgence that they see coming beyond that. Yeah, there's a great chart in that piece, actually, looking at what happens if you were had $10,000 invested in the S&P 500 uh, for the best days of a rally. And if you're in at the start, that return could be over $60,000. Uh, if you miss the 10 best days, that return comes down to just 30000 Absolutely. It's all about timing in the market. So, well, speaking of which, uh, now bank fears do seem to be easing just somewhat more more risky Asia-Pacific bank bonds have rebounded after a wipeout. Joining us this morning is Bloomberg's executive editor for Asia Markets, Paul Dobson. Paul, it's great to have you uh, with us. Look, how far have 81 bonds um, by Asia-Pacific banks actually managed to rebound? This is the kind of critical point. This was the fallout from Credit Suisse. Yeah, hi there, Caroline. Good to be with you. Um, so uh, I, we we are seeing an across the board rebound in the eighty one uh, bonds for Asian uh, issuers today. Uh, thirty eight of the thirty nine that are trading are, are up and, and pairing most of the losses that we saw yesterday. Not kind of clawing back everything, um, and there are still some clouds over the market. But it seems like the clarifications that were provided um, by uh, the authorities in Europe and the UK that uh, the CDS structures for most of the market aren't quite the same as what they are for Credit Suisse gave investors somewhat uh, a, a sense of reassurement uh, that it wouldn't be the same case where the those bonds would be wiped out before equities in that sort of waterfall pecking order. And so that's given the market a bit of confidence and it's also helped to rebound in financial stocks uh, across Asia as well. Uh, the, the banks and the big insurers like AIA having a stronger day today. Is that a meaningful rebound in, in those areas, though? Or how shaken is the outlook for European banks more broadly? I mean, bank stocks have been the darlings of the, the rally since last September. Yeah, and that's probably part of the part of the issue, right? Uh, they had such a strong performance that when the clouds started to gather, everybody feared a storm. And, you know, as we've seen uh, a number of uh, hedge funds, macro hedge funds, getting flushed out of positions left, right and centre, really heading for the hills and having to liquidate things that were profitable as well, that probably uh, had something to do with uh, the turnaround that we saw in European banks as well. And on top of that, you know, the, the, the moderation in bets on what the ECB is likely to do again would affect the the outlook for the bank's uh, profitability over the future years. So all of those things sort of weighing on the negative as well as the actual risks associated with 
with the banks. You know, there's lots of reassurances being given that they're they're solid and fine. We had lots of reassurances as well about Credit Suisse. So I think that the market is going to continue to probe those weaker links, um, trying to uncover any of the any of the soft points. And uh, in the flip side of that, the regulators are going to be doing everything that they can to provide those reassurances to investors now. Well, there are also these reports that U.S. officials are are looking at ways to temporarily guarantee all bank deposits in the U.S. I mean, that kind of bank um, deposit guarantee would surely sure up stock markets. But then there's the kind of risk question, moral hazard question on that. Yeah, that would it would certainly help certainly help the market from a, a sort of investing point of view. I should reassure our depositors that there's no need to hoik their cash from any of the smaller regional banks if they were worried about potential losses. It might not stop them, of course, mentally. Or you know, kind of if you if you've seen what's happening, you might think, well, you know, why don't I just uh, accept slightly smaller interest rates to put it somewhere where I know that it's going to be safe for the longer term. Uh, on the other hand, you're right; it should provide some sort of a backstop. For for the market. It should provide reassurances that authorities are right behind this. The only flip side is, uh, as you said, the, well, two things may be one, moral hazard, um, the idea that the protecting everything, meaning very little can go to the wall, is something of a risk uh, in terms of complacency for the sector. And and also uh, the, the other kind of um, risk that, that might be hanging over people is the suspicion that if they're willing to do this much, what else don't we know at the moment? What are the other dangers that we haven't uncovered yet that might still be lurking? Okay, Paul Dobson, our Executive Editor for Asia Markets, thank you very much uh, for bringing us that analysis. Let's turn to the next big event that markets are watching out for, though, the Fed's two-day meeting beginning uh, amid volatility that we've seen on the Treasury markets in recent days. So will the Fed focus on, on price stability or financial stability? Our Senior Asia Economy Reporter, Michelle Jamrisco, is with us for more on that. Uh, Michelle, great to have you with us. So is this going to yeah. be the, the dovish hike or the hawkish hold? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm not uh, smart enough to make my bets uh, and to, to stick with them. But of course, the big question right now, and really a question of balance across the board for Jay Powell. I mean, you have the price stability versus financial stability. You also have hard data versus sentiment, Wall Street versus Main Street. So he's really going to have to, if he does a dovish uh, hike or, or a hawkish hold, I mean, no matter what he does, he's going to have to provide some real reassurances that things are under control, that no matter what might come, which nobody knows uh, what might lie ahead in the global banking sector for one, but uh, elsewhere in the economy, uh, he's going to have to outline the tools that they have got in place and reassure everyone that uh, they're monitoring things closely, obviously, but they've got all these tools set up. And as Paul was just saying, you know, this report about um, them exploring other ways to assure all depositors. So really kind of pulling out all the stops and uh, making sure that things are in order in case things could get worse. Okay, um, so then the view around whether the Fed is going to be focused fully on inflation or the banking crisis, what wins out, that's, we're still immensely uncertain about that. No, it totally is. And, and and now we're in a place where, of course, it's it's pause versus quarter point hike. I mean, earlier than last week, we were still hearing Powell entertain the notion of a half point hike. That's that's certainly off the table at this point in, in everyone's view. But, you know, the case for a pause, they're looking at markets tightening financial conditions enough so far. Perhaps the Fed won't have to. The Fed swap lines arrangement, as well as, you know, what we were talking about with assuring all depositors, maybe that's a sign that they have underlying, underlying anxiety 
anxiety about what might still come. So maybe another reason for a pause. It's too early to tell what the tools so far might have done uh, from last week just to just to help uh, bring those stresses down. And successive banking stresses do show you know the impact of the the tightening over the last year. But alternatively, I mean, like there's also a very strong case for a quarter point hike. I mean, this, the swaps move on on top of assuring depositors and setting up a facility and and doing all these things to control the financial stability situation is reviving this uh, case that you know the Fed can walk and chew gum at the same time. It has two tools or two different toolboxes: one for financial stability, and there's a case to be made that interest rates should only be used on the price stability side. And on that side, they're still concerned about inflation. So you know it's all of that plus the idea that you know reneging on their inflation fight, which Powell has kept up for so long, uh, and in the face of market scrutiny and, and market doubts, reneging on that now might just blow his credibility uh, even more. So he's he's got a, a tough and very narrow path to achieve at this meeting. Okay, our senior Asia economy reporter, Michelle Jamrisco, thank you very much for that look ahead to the Federal Reserve meeting. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So what do the events the past fortnight in the banking sector mean for the wider financial world and what consequences could come down the line? We've been discussing this with Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite. We started by asking him if we were in a new global financial crisis. The simple answer, um, which would be true, I think, even if I was a regulator, is we don't know. But at the moment, it sort of feels like a milder version, I think. Um, it feels like a variety of slightly unrelated events or, or not wholly um, interrelated events where you have what happened with Silicon Valley Bank being pretty different to what happened with Credit Suisse. But against that, you know, you look back through history, what happened with Northern Rock was pretty different to what happened with the Royal Bank of Scotland. So it often creates an atmosphere in financial crises where lots of things that aren't necessarily interrelated or people afterwards can claim, look, they had nothing to do with each other. At the time, uh, markets are febrile, so they jump from part to part. So the answer is, I think probably not, because I think this time there is more capital and things around, and regulators are at least vaguely better prepared than they were last time. But it's hard to say. Are you waiting for more shoes to drop then? I think at the moment people, at the time of speaking, you know, people are looking very hard at the American regional banks. Um, it, what's been shown, I think especially by the Credit Suisse side, is that once you have a kind of liquidity run, it's very hard to stop. Um, because if you look at the numbers, and again, I don't have these immediately at hand, but basically for the amount of capital that Credit Suisse had against the sort of bigger loans, it wasn't bad or certainly a lot better than it was back in 2008, 2009. But once things started to move, it was immensely difficult from a liquidity point of view to keep going. And that, you know, we're in a situation where just maybe UBS has pulled off one of the great deals 
of the century in terms of snapping up a lot of assets amazingly cheaply. There must be a bargain somewhere in that, but the question is we don't know quite what's under the covers. Is what we're seeing uh, in banking a failure of regulation or a kind of success of lessons learnt after 2008? Do the rules need to change again? Regardless of whether it's deserved or not, the the record on this is pretty clear throughout history, is the rules will change again. I think this time it's perhaps less individual kind of liquidity rules, capital rules. You know, there are a few obvious things uh, which perhaps were always obvious to do is the idea that just because a bank wasn't classed as too big to fail, like Silicon Valley Bank, you know, why on earth weren't regulators looking at things like mismatches between deposits and things? That, 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 you know, that just seems like a straightforward tick, those ones. I think in terms of real change, it's going to be perhaps more in terms of the attitude towards banking. And I think you will see, my guess is, that there you will see a push towards a slightly more nationalistic view of finance in the same way as we've seen a much more nationalistic view of just about everything in an era of decoupling. And I think you're going to see that. You know, Switzerland decided this was a strategic industry for Switzerland. I mean, maybe, again, that is bleedingly obvious, but they hadn't really looked at it in those terms before. I think for America, bailing out Silicon Valley Bank became not just a question about depositors, it became about the whole um, integrity of American tech, the flagship industry of America, and so on and so on. I think there is a lot of that going on. The backdrop to all of this, of course, is rising interest rates from central banks as well. This presenting central banks with a dilemma of trying to bring down inflation, but also trying to manage the concerns of financial stability. Can those two things really both be managed by the same authorities? I think in the end, they probably have to. I think in the end, what happens with um, banking crises is that whether you like it or not, the central banks get blamed for it. There was a time back in Britain when I think Mervyn King at the Bank of England um, thought that with Northern Rock that wouldn't necessarily end up at his door. At the time I worked for a magazine that put him on the cover Um, and I think he felt not unreasonably that that was a bit unfair, there was a whole new finance system but the basic idea behind finance in the end people look towards the central bank you, you, the central banks are going to be the people providing cash if you need it that's one reason and secondly there is a degree of kind of clubbishness and in some ways which is a good thing between banks and the people they regulate and you know the bank of england is in the middle of the city of london true the feds in washington and um and uh, the the financial system is mainly outside Washington. But in general, I think there is a there is a feeling along those ways. And, it, and there's not, no matter how hard central bankers try to jump away from this at this moment, people will always look at them. In a time of so much change, are there going to be many winners emerging from this, do you think? Well, there could be. You've got Warren Buffett once again. He's always out there looking for a bargain and has a reasonable record of spotting them. There will be, um, no doubt, some people who would like to think they're part of the committee to save the world. Um, and you know, already see Jamie Dimon involved in part of that. Um, and financially, there will be people who bought things at the right time. The sort of basic Silicon Valley bank portfolio of lending to tech companies was going reasonably well. That wasn't 
where their problem came from. People who buy that could do very well. Um, First Republic, perhaps the same. We mentioned UBS. You know, in principle, at least, if we had gone back even five years ago, I think if you'd seen to UBS and once you got rid of all their protestations about the fact they didn't want it, etc., 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 if you'd said you can buy Credit Suisse for three billion, I think they might have said that's not a bad deal. And so I think from that perspective, there is upside. But again, as I said before, we we don't quite know exactly what comes with that. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.